Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Blackie, talk to writers about writing. Very often, those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show. In the case of this month's guest, Sam Richard, he was recommended to me by Brendan Vedito. So if you like this episode, go back and listen to the two, I think, that I had with Brendan. And if you liked those, make sure to stick around, because this one will be good, too. Sam Richard is the author of Sabbath of the Fox Devils and the Wonderland award-winning collection To Wallow in Ash and Other Sorrows. He's also the author of the short story collection Grief Rituals. He's the owner of Weird Punk Books, and he's edited and co-edited several anthologies, including the Splatterpunk Award-nominated The New Flesh, a literary tribute to David Cronenberg, Stories of the Eye, and Cinema Viscera. His short fiction litters the literary landscape like a lumbering plague, He was widowed in 2017 and slowly rots in Minneapolis. Before we get into my conversation with Sam, I'll remind you that for two bucks a month, you can get these episodes a little bit early. Patreon.com slash NoisemakerJoe. If you want to read my own writing, I have a novel out through Alien Buddha Press. It's called Tired. It's on Amazon. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Sam. day or two before to wallow in ash came to my door i was in my i was in my group chat with my friends and i was this is like a thought that's that's been in my brain for a while is i said to them what is the last piece of horror media you read or watched or whatever that actually scared you that made you feel fear because i feel like it's not a thing that happens with me um every now and again i'll watch a movie feel a little anxious if i'm really into it if i'm really in the in the watching horror mood um and like the first time i went to a haunted house a couple years ago was really genuinely terrifying for me and now it's just fun um and a lot of horror has been like that where like maybe the first time i get into a new type of horror it's scary or like body horror will never not be uncomfortable for me um and then i read to wallow in ash and i i i felt genuinely terrified (laughs) as a husband and a father just genuinely um just woof that's yep that's i will never not be scared anymore reading about um uh you know somebody's partner dying and it's interesting because you know it's not the first grief story i've experienced and in fact i feel like i was just on the record on the show not too long ago talking about how everybody said hereditary was so scary but for me it was just sad i think if i were to go back and watch it now that like i've kind of gotten it you know like to wallow and ash really made loss as a fear click with me now now i think i understand why like hereditary is so scary yeah yeah that makes sense it's uh it's funny because i so my dad is a horror fan he's not like a huge horror fan he's a big sci-fi nerd he was like first generation tabletop role playing like back when it was all war games and stuff he's a nerd like i i'm the reason i am who i am because of my father Mm. he would show us horror movies at a very young age i asked him a few years ago i asked him what's the scariest book you've ever read because he's read all the classics you know in horror i was like what's the what's the scariest book he's ever read and he was like pet cemetery 
Mm-hmm. I'm not a I'm not a King guy. Like he's just not who I came to the genre to the genre through. He's not. I don't have anything against him, and he's done a lot for horror, but it's just not kind of where my trajectory came yeah. from. And there's like I've read a handful of his books, and I like a couple, but I was like, really, Pet Cemetery, like Stephen King, and he was like, you were maybe one years old when I read that book, and I, I got it. I was like, okay, see, I see ya, I see ya. So I, I, I think in a way, like it, you know, to wallow to me is not about. I, it's like amazing to hear that it terrified somebody because I never think of it as a book that does that mm-hmm. because the, I think horror, right. Isn't just, does it scare you or is it scary at all? Like mm-hmm. I think horror is capable of so many things, so many emotions. It's about exploring so many different emotions, different States, different story types um, that like the, the emphasis on, on like scary is like, a component of one possibility mm-hmm. and to me all of writing to wallow and then re- writing uh grief rituals that was all like desperate scratching t- for survival yeah. slash communication of what i was going through both in it, almost in this like hope of a feedback loop that it helped me to write so maybe if someone else was in it as well, who read it, it would help them to read, to go like, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And then knowing, like, especially having heard from people who've experienced really a profound loss in their life, you know, message me, send me emails, friends who've, I have a lot of widow friends who've read it, uh, tell me how much it meant to them or affected them or like there's these little things within it they really connected with because they're so familiar, but no one ever talks about them. Uh, all of that became this weird feedback loop of like, it helped me if it helped you, it helped me to write, but then if it then helped you to get through it, even just for a second, even just to feel not as alone, I feel less alone now. Yeah. Right. It's like, now I'm hearing that back. I'm hearing you say that. And that like, that is kind of the, one of the you know in hindsight like one of the big reasons that i wrote those mm-hmm. mm, that's really beautiful i like that a lot i i find that i wonder if if mm, it's it's hard to bring it up a, a a daydream i often had was something terrible happens and i lose my wife and it's like okay, well, I'm going to go full Christopher Knight and go live in the woods. And, <laughs> and like, I would joke to my friends for the longest time, like, oh, the only thing between me and a cabin in the woods is Katie. The only anchor right. to society, whatever. Um, and then I quit drinking. And, and so, like, it got uglier. The daydream that popped in my head would get uglier because it's like, well, if she dies, just pff, all bets are off. Right. And and no one will blame me for coming yep. out of retirement. Um, yeah. And now that I have a kid, like, it's like, well, I just, I can't, <laughs> like, I need two people. <laughs> I need, yeah. like, I'm, I'm a pretty good dad. Um, and I, I say that very humbly. I've been told that by people who have had really bad dads. So like so far, right. You know, yeah. under two years so far doing pretty good. Um, but like, I can't, I can't work a full-time job that requires me to be out of the house and be a dad. And so, like, a lot of the, the fear that came in 
was like not only kind of grounding those weird sort of like intrusive daydreams of like well now you can just do whatever because your moral compass is gone to like oh wait no like actually you know this person means more to me and clearly always you know it's not just like i found a person who would keep me in the suburbs <laughs> or anything like that but um so it like really a lot of the more banal parts of life that grief intrudes upon and that losing a partner intrude upon was um kind of brought me down to earth a little yeah. bit um whereas you know as i was kind of getting at before you know grief to me just looked like just hedonism you know just nicholas cage leaving las vegas sort of thing you know um so so yeah you know i i uh i appreciate it for sort of maturing me to to read it and just be like you know what no like let's be in our 30s now (laughs) (laughs) that's good to hear it's also funny because i i feel like the thesis specifically of tawalo grief rituals is like the relationship with grief is different because my relationship with grief is different years years on right mm-hmm. but like but the, the specifically the grief of my wife dying uh but to wallow i i've kind of summed up among friends like the thesis point of that book is like how to not grieve or like how to grieve horrifically mm-hmm. horrifically incorrectly like like the most unhealthy ways of grieving that aren't like the obvious like human like i'm gonna fucking i'm just gonna drink till i die or Mm -hmm. you know take drugs till i die or whatever like you said the hedonistic path and there's certainly some hedonism within those stories as well but it's hedonism generally of a different sort it's the it's the chasing the abyss uh in very unique ways because that's what made sense to me at the at the time that i wrote them and like specifically the titular story of Tawalo and ash like that was a thought that I had. Mm-hmm. I didn't do it. Oh. Um, so for, for people who, who obviously haven't read it, like the, the story is about a widower who can slowly over time consumes all of his wife's cremains, blending them into smoothies and then not. And then, yeah. Uh, and that was like a, a thought, like a brief Grief is so weird the way that your brain, I mean, brains in general, but it really, those, these moments of something that you would never think of, you would never think was like a normal human thought to have. Your brain's like, what if I do this? Mm-hmm. And because in this fucking almost dream logic way that grief operates, uh, the idea of consuming my late wife's ashes was a, a way of keeping her with me right and not letting her go mm-hmm. it's like her remains like not letting them go not like they are a part of me now i am making them a part of me and that was a real thought that i had and i i wrote that story and i don't remember if i say in the introduction uh but like that one i think was day 15 after she died and we feed this muddy creek was day 16 or somewhere around there mm-hmm. um it's it's talking about that book is a little complex because this is the second version of the book Mm -hmm. it came out in 2019 from nihilism revised and then it won the award the award that it won and then it went out of print really fast and 
I, when I put the new version out, I did new art, I wrote a new introduction, I removed a story and I added a novelette uh, just because I wanted it to be a little stronger. And I, you know, there was just some things on readback that I wasn't as happy with. I did a whole new edit. So it's like, fuck, which iteration of the version do I say what in the introduction? Mm-hmm. But those two stories were written like it was, you know, about two weeks after she died. And that was that one specifically was like a genuine uh moment that i had of like wanting to do that which was partially spurned from what they it says in the story right what they don't tell you is that if someone's cremains are in an urn they are not just in that urn they're in a plastic bag yeah they don't like dump them in there for you they put the plastic bag in there for you and i put her remains in uh pinks like a himalayan pink salt urn like this is not in this is real mm-hmm. i put them in a himalayan pink salt urn and buried it in the bank of the mississippi river by a dog park that we would take my now a dog that died a few years ago we would take our dog to all the time she loved that place and my hope was that her ashes like the urn dissolves uh in wet soil it dissolves like in a week and you know more dry soil it does break down over weeks a few weeks but my hope was that her ashes would become one with the mississippi river and it would flow down to new orleans which was her favorite city and then out into the world at large beyond that and uh so i had to do the thing i had to look i had to break the seal i had to look in the cremains or like look and it was like oh there's plastic in here and i did get not intentionally but i did get a minor taste of her ashes because when they all got out of the bag there were these little like fingery plumes of ash ash and smoke that like kissed my lips it was like it was a very weird i was like yeah what would it be like to just fucking eat these because i kind of want to mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't taste very good <laughs> no i'm sure not um well thank god that that's as true as the thing got because i <laughs> like because i don't know man i read a lot of like autofic stuff about you know punk 20 somethings doing lots of stuff and right. you know like yeah. there's a lot of plausible stuff that happens in the in those books um yeah that that one in particular too it's really funny because so again with the first version of that book when nihilism vice put it out i didn't realize until i was doing the edits for the new version that in the original version of the story I did not give her, like, it is her name. Mm. Like, I named the character Mo. My late wife's name was Mo. I've since revised that. I can't believe that I put that. So, of course, a bunch of people thought it was at least plausible. And I had, it's really funny because I've had people reach out to me, especially in those first, I don't know, year or so that book was out. I would occasionally have people reach out to me and ask how she tasted. Like, what was it like to Mm. eat her? Like, they thought it was real. And it was something that, like, both was, like, I don't know, kind of an ego stroke to be like, okay, like, I wrote this in a way that's real enough that people think it happened, but also, like, made me, like, viscerally upset the first few times it happened because I was like, are you fucking kidding me? A, if this was real, that you would ask me that and I don't really know you. Yeah. Uh, There were three people who asked me that question who I, like, didn't feel that way about and it was three widows who read the book who asked Mm. 
I think they themselves had had similar moments, right? Like, yeah. So I was like, okay, they get a pass for asking because we are in this in a way together that other people are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's the book has other a lot of other moments in it that stem from those realities, right? Right. You know, there's a lot in that story that's that's real. The the story. Um, death like love mm-hmm. which is like a petite necrophilia story for lack of a better term it's like my all of my bataille like my lifelong love of bataille filtered into that story sure did and the, the, yeah, yes uh the part at the beginning of that story i don't need to like spoil the whole thing with the part at the beginning in the emergency room the little room where she's like the character is in the room with his late wife she's just died and there's that moment of desire for like a sexual connection was a moment that I had right? like for Ernest and it, I put it out of my mind and it like wrecked me that I even had it mm-hmm. because it feels so like profane, yeah. you know, to, to have a moment, but it was, it's also like the, my soul crying out to be, to have that kind of, or any kind of intimacy with the person that I love more than anything in the world one last time. And I felt like I really beat myself up about having that moment. And then I like, one of the things that I like, my least favorite thing in the world is like needless guilt. Mm -hmm. Um, So I try really hard to not let myself feel guilty for things. Like I had a thought in a moment of extreme duress and I, pushed it from my mind and it kind of haunted me but i'm like fuck having the guilt over that because i understand why that was something that like my brain was telling me like i needed you know or wanted or and so that whole story too is kind of rooted again none of the none of that shit happened but like that like seeded from a true uh both like understandable and kind of grotesque thought Mm-hmm. That, that happened in in the again kind of the the dream logic of of being just nothing but grief and shock right and that's i think kind of the the really beautiful thing about writing in particular that you can follow those threads um you know and not just like in your mind thinking about them later daydreaming but like really follow the thread commit it to paper um and see where it would have gone yeah and then be glad that you (laughs) were were decent (laughs) um (laughs) yeah it really is and it's like it can serve as almost an exorcism in -hmm. that way of like let's get this it's like those things can feel so intrusive that it's like let's mine this through art and get rid of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I think too, that's what I like about genre fiction, particularly because it allows a filter um, over those things. We're like, I don't know. I, I, I was coming of age during new metal. And so mm-hmm. when I first got the desire to write songs, as a kid everything was um written as plainly as could possibly be written and it like felt too easy it felt wrong it felt weird it felt 
I don't know. I guess cringy is probably the term that I wouldn't have had at the time, but but probably would use now. Um, and I think I think maybe that's like the sticking point on Midwest emo music for a lot of people too. Um, <laughs> where it's like there's no texture here, right? Um, and so genre fiction, I I think, does that really well. Where like, especially if it's an ugly thought or an uncomfortable thought or a taboo thought, like you put the, the horror lens on it and it becomes easier to explore because you're already like in the no holds barred sort of area of art. Yeah. I, th- I think that's one of the like essential strengths of horror is its ability to just, just, like just just do that to just go like so one of the things that uh, brendan and i like brendan vedito right mm-hmm. we've had multiple times he's one of my best friends like awesome. we he is the person we read each other's like all of each other's shit he's the one person i trust completely to like edit and give me notes because we really get each other mm-hmm. uh each other's work and um he and i talked a lot especially recently about like when you're writing something feeling the confines of horror kind of pressing down on you sometimes happens to me on occasion where I'm like, Oh, I have this idea. It's like really dark and kind of weird. Um, but like, what's the horror element? Mm -hmm. And then I go, why am I concerned with like, I should just write the thing that I want to write. Right. Instead of trying to structure it, uh, to existing molds, uh, and existing genre conventions. And then I get done and I'm like, oh, the horror thing is the thing. It's the whole thing. The horror isn't necessitated like by inclusion of a giant fucking monster or a guy with an axe or whatever. Like horror is so inclusive of what it can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're just willing to like let it be all of those things and more. Yeah. So I am interested in where you think or if you think the line is between something that's horror and something that's like just dark. Uh, we mentioned before the show, uh, apocalypse party has to say all the time, we're not a horror press. We publish day ruiner books. Um, and I think maybe, maybe there's room to disagree with Ben there (laughs) a little bit. Um, but in his estimation, yeah. Um, so like, you know, you're a publisher. When you're reading a manuscript that like is dark but isn't horror, what's missing there, or is that a thing that you come across? That's not really a thing that I've come across yet. Um, I've gotten a lot more work that skews on, like, hardly towards the convention of the genre, like the tropes and the standard sets of things and that's what as a press weird punk is trying to avoid Mm. um i I think that like similarly like in similar spirit as apocalypse party i think we have very distinct things Mm -hmm. you know obviously but they're one of the presses that i see out there that's like similar in that because i always feel like i mean you never know how other people think about your press right just like you never know how other people think about your work like truly like where they kind of put it next to other things and order it in their mind and um in my mind there's a few presses that 
like weird punk kind of floats near mm-hmm. and none of us are overlapping entirely ever but like, like tenebrius is one like they do a lot of stuff that i mean they've i've had stuff in my inbox i've been really excited for that they are it's like the person the author hits me up and is like oh tenebrius got it because they read it faster than me because there's <laughs> fucking two people and i'm just one <laughs> uh, but but that thing i get a lot more uh really like horror that's more conventional or pitches i don't do open submissions i do uh i will occasionally be open for pitches or like much like you do with the podcast people can recommend like authors pitch things to me and i can say like okay yeah, i'm probably open to that and then if i like the pitch i'll read the thing for consideration hmm. um but I, I get a lot more stuff that's like in the vein of horror that's just not really what weird punk does it's what a lot of other small horror presses do but i'm always trying to like push against those boundaries and push against the kind of perceived cons- conventions of the genre just because that's where the interesting work lies and that's where that's the stuff i've always been a fan of as a horror fan is your fucking brian yesnos and your david cronenberg's and your kathy kojas and your you know that kind of stuff is like the world that i love and i want to help facilitate more of that into the world and that you know of course like a a number of the books that i've published have still like really firmly have one foot in the pulpy side of things too which i also love Mm. my aim is to always like so not like decrying any of that like i love that stuff too but my aim is to always push into that i don't know that stranger uh more sometimes nebulous more existential uh side of the genre and I, mean, I guess it's you know as far as like I, and i wish i got more stuff that was like that but as far as like drawing those lines i do think it's really in, like it's hard to do because everyone's perception of what each like subgenre line is is so different mm-hmm. like i have a really um like i love old school splatter punk right like i love like Skip Inspector and David Scow and Kathy Koja is one of my favorite writers of all time. And she is often kind of nestled in with that crew. Like, I really like that stuff. And there's a lot of people writing what they term splatterpunk now that to me is not splatterpunk at all. Mm. Because just because it's like crazy violent doesn't mean it's splatterpunk. Right. And a lot of the splatterpunk stuff isn't even that crazy violent. Some of the David Scow stuff is, it's not exactly quiet horror, but it's not, like in your face mountain dew ad of horror uh it's much more thoughtful and much more human it's like they just don't shy away from the grizzly bits they show them but it's not the point the point is the punk part the point is having something to say the point is you know like criticizing something or showing some kind of illumination you know within the the rotting filth of the masses of like being alive, being a human of how horrific the world can be all of that. And that's the stuff. So I'll be like, Oh yeah, I like splatter punk. And I think it's like a lot of other people's perception of what that means is very different from my own. It's one of those things that I like, Oh fuck, maybe I shouldn't say that because maybe it means a different thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the exact same thing is true with uh, transgressive literature, right? Like as a genre tag which is another thing that I love. That's where I come from. That's mm. what I came the horror through is reading Kathy Acker, William Burroughs, J.G. Ballard, George Bataille, 
you know, Samuel Delaney, like all of these, this really gnarly shit that's literature. Mm-hmm. And then finding people again, like Kathy Koja, who are like, oh, this is the spirit of transgressive literature done in a horror way or like a blending of these worlds. And I don't see a lot of people like doing that, but that's like, that's my, I love it when people do that. And so even talking about transgressive literature becomes this murky thing where it's like, okay, so if it's dark, but maybe it's not horror, maybe it doesn't have like a monster in it or a supernatural thing or a serial killer in it, then what is it? Is it, transgressive literature but i also think that one is like a specific thing and means a specific thing because that's also about like the churning through of taboo and transgressive topics in the name of a loop finding illumination within like Mm -hmm. that transgressive means a very specific thing within the body like the philosophy of the literature and uh, so it's another term that like you have to know it because a bunch of people are like oh so it's just a bunch of fucking sexual assault stories and i'm like god no like i'm not into i mean i read some you know some of those books have that but like that that's not the point if it's in there and it's not like the genre is just that um and so like all of these weird you're like so then where does this stuff fit Mm -hmm. and is it horror and is it not and is it about the spirit in which it's produced to decide what genre it fits in is it about the way that it's branded after it's produced that decides what genres and genre it's in is genre like prescriptive or is genre descriptive um and i think like genre should be descriptive like it should be how we describe something as opposed to a box we put something in um so in that way i think a lot of the stuff kind of on those fringes like is horror maybe even if the even if the author doesn't necessarily think it is or they have that like thing like i was saying earlier about does it fit if i don't put in all this other stuff you know that like this almost uh this part of you that's like itching like oh fuck i don't know if it's quite horror because it didn't include there's not some gnarly shit in there that's beyond like all the existential gnarly shit but Mm -hmm. I, i i all of this to say for rambling for 10 fucking minutes i don't have a real answer uh but i think that thinking about genre and thinking about how we approach categorizing of art is something that we should kind of, or I don't know, I don't want to tell people what to do, but in my mind is something I'm trying to shift towards thinking about it as like describing the work, not something that we are declaring the work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to, to use it prescriptively for myself to keep me focused Mm -hmm. from time to time um but but otherwise i like to use it descriptively um which is particularly in music uh where i think people tend to get annoyed with me or tired with me because i'm like no 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 it's black into progressive deathcore don't you like (laughs) The songs are six minutes long. He screams higher in the register and there's still breakdowns. It makes perfect sense, guys. <laughs> I, um, as a, a metalhead, um, I agree. I, and I think that a lot of that is like, there's a, 
like readable technical component to music that helps with like here's how it fits where it fits which is something that i think genre like musical genres could learn a lot from electronic music on where it's like Mm -hmm. no it's this because this is what the bpm is or it fits Mm -hmm. within this window or there's this other aspect and i don't know a ton about electronic music but i know that's one of the things with how music is categorized in that genre is it's almost like rigorously controlled this Mm -hmm. genre has to include like this amount of beats per minute or these other very specific genre conventions (laughs) um whereas with metal we get a lot of I, I was in a, a crust band for a long time, and in a review, we got called post atmospheric blackened crust core. Mm. And all of us looked at each other and went, What the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. I, but as, as a potential listener, I like that because I know what all those words mean to me. Right. Yeah, for right? sure. Like, I, yeah. I certainly wouldn't. Well, I don't. I can understand why that's difficult for a lot of people because we're coming out of um, a period in time where we really siloed ourselves um, kind of aesthetically. Now it's easy to have, you know, an aesthetic for every day or whatever. Um, But I mean, man, if you were goth in the 2010s and you had a, a white stripes t-shirt like you're gonna you're gonna catch some shit you know um <laughs> so i understand there's some of that but you know i i always had a hard time with people being like why can't you just call it music and i'm like well because because the mermen and bring me the horizon are both music but two very <laughs> different people are gonna like those things uh and it's you know but also, you know, when we have the descriptions, I while you were talking about horror literature, I kept thinking about Bizarro. And if you go back and listen to very early episodes of the show, you can hear me grappling with it. Uh-huh. Um, because I keep seeing David Lynch's name. And then I read, you know, the Bizarro starter pack anthologies. And I'm like, I don't see David Lynch in here at all. Like uh-huh. Eraserhead Press is one of the names of the Bizarro presses, and none of that stuff reads as Eraserhead the film to me. Yeah. Um, I like Bizarro horror, don't get me wrong, but you know, like what I'm coming to David Lynch for as a director, I think is different from what other people are. Um, and so I would always get really frustrated when people were like, Oh, you like David Lynch, you'll like this show, and what they mean is like this show has a confusing plot so because you like twin peaks you'll like this show because it's confusing and not like because it's a a soap opera that knows it's a soap opera that's also kind of scary you know (laughs) yeah the bizarro is is, so that's kind of like swallow won the wonderland right like that's Mm. the big bizarro award and i never thought of that book as a bizarro book there's a couple stories that skew into that territory was called myself a weird horror writer specifically Mm -hmm. that's really the genre tag that that weird punk flies the banner of because i think that encompasses the entire side of horror that i'm interested in and um it's just the weird shit you know it's the fucking weird shit but uh that scene is 
interesting because a lot of books that get nominated for that award, uh, it's almost like because you're a part of that scene, you're folded in. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're, if it came out on a press, that's a part of that. Like three of the weird punk titles got nominated for this last year, like including grief rituals and, uh, and Brendan's book pornography for the end of the world. Mm. And it's like by association because he and I, like that's where we met was at Bizarro Con. Like, mm. you know, a part of that scene, the original days of weird punk when Emma started it, like she, Emma Alice Johnson was a Bizarro writer who won the Wonderland twice and like worked with Eraserhead and worked with uh, Bizarro Pulp Press and a few other of those presses that put out, lazy fascists like put out books with those presses and i think like the like if you're in that community your work gets is considered part of that conversation even if it's not as like out there or zany or oddball or madcap or whatever um and there's stuff in that genre too that it, that isn't that there is there's like uh, Roland Blackburn, I put out his book, 17 Names for Skin. Eraserhead put out his first book, Flesh Mulder's Love Song, um, which is like a bod- like a crazy bizarro, bizarro horror, like his body horror thing that, you know, there's stuff in that genre that if it like skews more to the, towards the horror side, I think it'll, you know, kind of different than some of the stuff in that genre that's more the, this is, really influenced by Saturday morning cartoons and really influenced by, you know, like alt comics, like our crumb and, uh, really influenced by the kind of, uh, stranger, like the strange world of film type of film versus the, the dark weird world of film. Yeah. <laughs> it's like more, there's some of it's more concerned with, uh, like Tetsuo, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, fucking iron man than it is uh, i'm trying to struggle of what some of the other like things they you know influence that genre are but like ren and stimpy cartoons or something right and there are people who expertly bridge those worlds too which is like crazy to me but um it, it's a that's a genre that's a really interesting thing and i do think it's fascinating though you're talking about lynch because uh, Cameron Pierce, who ran Lazy Fascist Press, right, which was one of the Eraserhead imprints, right. put out a literary tribute to David Lynch mm-hmm. in Heaven, Everything's Fine. And I haven't read it, but it has a lot of writers from that scene in it. Uh, and I'd be really curious how those approaches, like each of their approaches to, to that style of film, but done in writing form, you know, plays off if it's a bunch of writers from that, that scene. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in learning more about Lazy Fascists. It was one of the first indie presses I bought books from, and I was buying, like, Sam Pink books. Yeah, you yeah. You know, and, like, I, I I have a hard time even calling early Sam Pink all that bizarro. But maybe okay. maybe that has something to do with all of the stuff that got influenced by Sam Pink's work sure and then, but that's also the thing with like with those branches right so you have a racer head which is the main line mm-hmm. here's the, just the pure bizarro stuff and then they had deadite which was the extreme horror and splatter punk and mm-hmm. you'd sometimes get bizarro tinged or bizarro horror stuff in there and then 
uh, Swallowdown, which was Jer- Jeremy Robert Johnson's. And I think that had like five books. Um, and it, was, it didn't have a very long uh, release slate before he stopped doing it. But those are kind of on the more lit side of the genre. And then there's Lazy Fascist, which is full on like the lit side of the genre. That is borrow yeah. as literature. And that's Cameron Pierce who ran that line. That was his thing. That was what he wanted. So he was publishing Sam Pink, absolutely. Blake Butler, mm-hmm. several books of his came out on that line. Um, like a lot of, just a ton of people. Jer- mm-hmm. uh, Jeremy Robert Johnson's uh, Skull Pratt City. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, Stephen Graham Jones, early Stephen Graham Jones books are on that. Oh, really? Internet. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, also, Brian Allen Carr, early Brian Allen mm. Carr was on there. There's a bunch of people who you're like, you wouldn't have think, or you wouldn't think had come out of that community, uh, mm. but they were being published by Lazy Fascists because he, because Cameron just had an eye for like, what's the like, I don't know, the weird Liddy weird lit shit yeah and even that line is really diverse there's some stuff that i'd be like this could maybe even be more of a mainline eraserhead title but he picked it up and he wanted to put it out and, and that's how it happened but yeah it's yeah. a that that was a i really like that that imprint and was sad when he closed that now like five years ago or whatever it was if not longer yeah yeah that was one of the things i really came into indie lit just as a lot of stuff was happening uh, as a lot of stuff was dying yes uh, like <laughs> i think i found out about html giant like a week before they shut down um and yeah i think i had time to buy like three lazy fascist books before they're like okay all done yep. uh, it was it was very disconcerting um to be like oh i think i kind of find some books i like to oh Never mind. Get out and to, it's get out to figure something else out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and luckily, you know, if if you're stuck for for things to read, just start a podcast. You'll you'll find a bunch. Um, uh, but I I think the the Saturday morning cartoon thing uh, associating that with Bizarro really made some things click for me. So. So thank you for that. That's that's just a little personal thing for uh, for me. Uh, kind of in in line with all of that, I found the the previous appearances section of grief rituals to be a really informative way of recontextualizing the work because so much of the stuff has been uh, originally appeared in anthologies, yeah, rather than. Uh, online lit mags i i'm not familiar with so like i don't really kind of skip that because i'm just kind of like i don't know what what solid block of wood magazine puts out but so you know whatever um (laughs) but you know a black metal horror anthology makes sense laser mall makes sense um that was really useful i think I, i can't remember who i spoke to who most of their stuff had only been published in print anthologies before their novel. And like, um, I don't know. I think, I think you'll agree with me that, that anthologies are a really useful tool for the reader. Um, and probably a good gateway for the, for the writer as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've never been, I, I don't think I've ever really tried, but I've never been published in an online journal or anything. I've only been published in print. Uh, for short stories and whatnot 
like even still like all these years later uh i all anthologies and a scant handful of magazines that are all print as well um i i think anthologies are I wish more people read them <laughs> and you get the, you get the ones that like a lot of people will read, which is cool. Um, I wish, you know, I, it also makes sense. There's a ton coming out, but I think that that ability to just do like such specific themes or not specific themes at all and see what happens and try to get a bunch of cool shit, like keeps me writing sometimes, or I'll just be like, I don't know this. I like, I'm aware of this publisher. I know that they're not shitty. It pays. The theme is like really cool. I'm just going to fucking go for it. And you know, your success rates vary for sure. But then if the theme isn't too hyper specific, you're like, well, I have a piece that I can try elsewhere with a non themed, or maybe something will come that's used close enough to what it is. And I don't tend to do that a lot, but for other people, like I like to, you know, if there's an anthology that isn't a, a best of or something, um, I try to write a thing for it as opposed to, oh, I have this piece that I think might maybe work. Like, as someone who has edited nine anthologies, I very much appreciate when someone takes the time to write a thing for the thing they're submitting to as opposed to finding an old trunk story that's eh, close enough mm-hmm. or like throwing an element in there that you can tell they threw in there five minutes before they click send on it. Uh, so I always try to write for theme, but that is a really good way of like getting your brain working for new ideas and being able to try to turn things around pretty fast uh, with parameters. Cause I don't know a lot of, I don't know. It's different for every writer. I don't know how it is for you, but for me often parameters help, even if it's a little like, like it's not a ton of guidance, but it's like here's the theme, or here's the style, or here's the kind of texture, or atmosphere, or vibe we're going for. I'm like, okay, I'll try to sculpt a piece of work into that. Like, a, you know, like make a new work that I'm like sculpting for for that particular thing uh, is good exercise for for the brain, um, and it's also how like a lot of my friends it's how and myself like my the people that i think of like truly as my peers in writing uh that's how we all fucking started that's how we all got our first publications like multiple times over before then you release the thing that's your thing and i always think it's there's not a good one-to-one but i think about it as like being in a punk band because that's kind of my background is like oh you you record some songs for some comps you know, some compilations or like a seven inch that's a split with another band. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially doing an ant like similar to doing an anthology. And then you work your way up to like, okay, now I'm going to do my full length, which is either like a short story collection or your longer work. Um, but it's, it's good. again, not a great one-to-one, but like similarly minded. And then it's like, well, I'm working on this stuff for this next long piece. I also should, you know, stretch my legs on some other stuff and, write for some other stuff and you know it's like putting out like a little single here and there another split seven inch with the band i don't know i think that that stuff's good i don't i don't i'm not gonna say it's like necessary i think writers can do whatever they want but if you're like for people who are just getting going in this i think that's a really good way to start Uh, it's a really good place to start yeah i think that i probably could have could have contextualized it better in my head when I was like writing flash fiction pieces for online lit mags 
as just a like it was it was almost I had a novel and a lot of the places I wanted to send it to were like we don't take unsolicited subscription or submissions and I was like yeah. okay well I guess I'll just try to publish a whole bunch of pieces of last fiction and maybe somebody will email me <laughs> it was a very like if I intern at this place maybe a job you know maybe I'll be able to network my way in um and I don't know that's it was probably too cynical uh, a way of, of doing it. I I wrote a lot of stuff that I liked from that uh, period of, of my writing life, but... And I think that yeah. there's there's something to be said for that, though. Like, I don't know about necessarily, like, lit, online lit journals or anything, but anthologies and, and, and magazines that are done by publishers who do, like, sing, solo work as well that's a really good way of getting your name in front of them and your foot in the door. And, you know, I had, uh, I've had people offer me, you know, Oh, if you ever have a longer thing you want to send to me, like, because I was in an anthology with them or that they published, you know, or, uh, even just like that door feels more open. My first, uh, my novella Sabbath of the Fox devils, when I first, wrote that i wasn't like weird punk was going but i wasn't putting any like solo stuff out it was all just an anthology a year Mm. and then the the joe quinnell's the mud ballad who's like joe is one of my best friends and um she's not really writing right now but when she does i read a lot of her stuff and she sent that to me she's like i wrote this and threw it in a fucking drawer because i hated it and then like two years later here i am and i reread it and i'm like maybe this isn't bad will you read it and let me know if it sucks because I want to submit it possibly to Grindhouse for their open call. And this was like 2019 and I read it and I fell in love with it. And I went, Josie, you got to let me publish this. Mm. And uh, that was what started weird punk doing novellas. And I had been at that same time working on Sabbath of the Fox devils and I think it was even done. I was just doing edits. I had submitted it to a couple places, but one of the places I submitted it to was a publisher who I had a short story in an anthology with. Uh, that's actually it's in grief rituals. The the uh, Death's Head Press uh, Breaking Bizarro, mm. which is like one truly like I was like I'm gonna write a fucking actual piece of Bizarro fiction that's really fucking sad. Yeah, and uh, that like. I really liked uh, Jared, who I don't I don't know if he's involved in the press anymore, but like he was really nice to me and really cool to work with. And he seemed to really like the story. And when uh, Sabbath was Sabbath, the Fox Devils was done, I hit him up and I was like, because I'd had several friends get published by them. And I was like, I don't know if you're open. I don't know if this is an overstepping of boundaries, but I have this book. It's done. It, you know, is in the splatterpunk realm y'all are publishing a lot of this kind of stuff or you know not this same thing but in this realm like would you be interested in looking at it he was like hell yeah man send it over and i sent it over and then in within three weeks i was like i'm gonna publish it myself (laughs) so i had to send him an email just being like sorry man i apologize for taking up your time uh with this fake fake out but i'm actually just gonna self-publish it under or publish it under weird punk but so all that to say, like doing, being part of these projects can open doors a little. I have, and it's going to depend on the publisher and some are going to be like, absolutely not get the fuck away from me. But I, this is half of how I seed weird punk projects 
is I have a thing where people can suggest, uh, you know, writers and I'll say like, yeah, you know, have them hit me up or I'm not really, I'm too busy right now. So sorry. But the other way is anyone I've worked with in the past, either on long stuff or they've been in an anthology, my door is always open to a pitch. If they have a finished thing and it's within what I do and it's within the scope, like word counts of what I do, um, they're, always welcome to hit me up and I'll let them know based on that pitch, you know, is, yeah, this sounds like it could be in the, in the wheelhouse or this doesn't sound like it could be in the wheelhouse. Good luck. Uh, let me know if there's any other publishers who I know who you think might want to take a look at it and I can advocate on your behalf. Um, but you know, that's seriously how several of the weird punk books, especially the last couple of years have come to be. Uh, Sarah Century was in the New Flesh, and I loved her story in the New Flesh. And I actually, and we became friends. And I actually reached out. I reached out to her. I was like, "Write me a fucking collection." <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I like that a lot. I that makes me feel good that that's the thing that happens. Yeah. Um. Because I don't know if it's just this winter or or whatever, man, but the cynicism is strong in early 2024 <laughs> oh my god I, i've had a lot of don't worry I've, I've had a lot of uh like publisher angst a lot of you know writer angst just not feeling great just feeling really frustrated so you're not alone in that cool well I'm just also sometimes there are good things <laughs> there's good people in the world and sometimes you meet them got it <laughs> uh good uh I, I do want to quick reel it back into your work because uh, we mentioned this before we started recording um the one of the sort of differences i noticed between Tawalo and ash and grief rituals aside from grief rituals didn't make me cry as much is that <laughs> the um the horror felt more like it was coming outside at at the speaker at the protagonist at the narrator um in grief rituals like beyond the loss um which is ever present in in Tawalo and ash a lot of as we as we kind of touched upon a lot of the the horror in that first collection comes from following the thread of those split second thoughts when your brain is just kind of spitballing ideas um yeah. And, and grief rituals feels more traditional um in that there's monsters and um and and that sort of thing and i sort of i guess i sort of read it as like the progression of the grieving process right you're not so scared of your own mind anymore and it's um it was in reading grief rituals that a lot of like the sort of anxiety of like oh, how would I pay my mortgage if my wife died sort of stuff um, came in. The more, like, logistical yeah. horror of losing, you know, we don't just say partner anymore because it's, like, hip and trendy and inclusive. Like, it it means partner. It, it yeah. means, like, I can't do this without you. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, I don't know. Like, is that... Is that something you noticed too as you were putting the collection together? Um, 
I, I mostly just noticed upon readback of all of those as I was kind of deciding what was going to go in it. I had, there's a few stories that I didn't put in it, you know, that I initially had thought to, and then I was like, ah, these just aren't, not even that they aren't as good, but like the impact is different. It makes the flow different. It makes the book feel different. But I, the, the thing that I really noticed when I was constructing that collection was just truly that the relationship with grief was different. Mm. I didn't really necessarily think about how like the horror is more external coming in than internal going out. Um, because I'm like, well, in Tawala, there are some, like there's a fucking crazy, crazy God in that. There's a, you know, there's stuff in that too. There's like, mm-hmm. you know, fucking ghosts and shit. <laughs> um, but like with uh, my brain was very like, I think processing everything was removed in a way, not entirely removed, right? Like this is, it's just like, this is my life now. Mm -hmm. Wallow is me coming to terms, coming to terms. You never really come to terms, but like trying to come with to terms with the fact that Mo died, like that is the entirely what that book is, is me trying to even like wrap my head around her absence in my life. And grief rituals is much more like her absence in my life is a big part of my life now. There's no grappling with it. I don't have to, I'm so used to it. Like it's a horrible kind of, I'm so used to it, right? It's almost like more tragic to feel like, oh, this has become normal to me that she isn't here. But that's also the reality of it is like, as as time goes on uh, in your life, keeps evolving and growing that grief that grief never goes away and sometimes it still feels like it's bigger than my whole life but it does that a lot less than it did in the early days when it was the thing that entirely consumed me Mm -hmm. Uh, and that i think for me you know and that's like your reading of it is completely accurate because it's your reading of it it's like i want everybody you know how they come to work is to a piece of work or body of work is how they come to it and i like respect and, and fully believe that but for me it was just about how that relationship with grief had evolved and changed in tandem with as a writer you know i've started feeling like am i delving into self-parody like mm. because here's another dead wife story and it's really sad and then it gets and some horror shit happens and not that that you know like that's my reality so of course i'm still processing that i still write those i wrote one for a it's going to be an anthology next like later this year that i was like i know what this story is because this is you know based on the prompt i had an idea that the story in feral architecture has an element to that too like you know that that is and will remain i'm sure for my whole life a component of what i write uh and i don't feel like they're the same they're all different but it was also like, I need to write some other things. I need to try to apply this grief. I need to try to apply the emotions of this loss into work that's about other things, into work that's about other types of relationships and loss, but also into other types of things in life. Just like how like actors will channel traumatic things that have happened to them into a character that's doing an entirely different thing right like the story isn't about that but now 
you know, I'm going to use the emotion from that really sad thing that happened to feed that emotion. It's like, I was like, oh, I, sh- I have to learn how to do that as a writer now, uh, where it's not just another dead wife story. It's mm-hmm. a- about something else. It's about a fractured family relationship uh, that was part of a white power organization. It's about, uh, you know, like any of the stories in there, I was, you know, and there's still a few, there's some, you know, very like partner death stories in there, but the, the, just the thing of it is different. It's, it's, I just want, I also just wanted those stories to be different because I felt like I was just like ruminating on the same thing over and over again to the point where I even wrote a few things that I was like, I discarded. So like now I literally feel like I'm a band doing the same, right. Rewriting the same song over and over. Yeah. Which is interesting too, because I didn't, sorry, I just like, yeah, go ahead. I didn't have any of thoughts of like what I'm doing as a writer when I wrote to wallow. Right. Right. I didn't, I just fucking wrote those stories and some of them were in anthologies and stuff, but I was like, there's an anthology call. I'm going to just write, I'm just going to try to process all this stuff that's happening and write it for this thing. Uh, and that's a lot of the grief ritual stuff we're in things too. So it was like, I want to develop a story on this theme, but it, it was more uh, deliberate almost to like what types, like I want to do something different as opposed to, to all it was like, I'm just trying to survive, which, you know, it shows in the, like all that, how that relationship with grief is different and progresses over time. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, that makes that makes an awful lot of sense. Um, I want to also touch on uh, feral architecture, um, largely because I think Ballard is is another one of those guys where, because of my limited reading, I've read Crash and the Drowned World. Um, I I think when when most people say Ballardian, they're thinking about something kind of outside of my understanding or beyond sure. my understanding. Um, and so I'm, I'm just, I'm interested to know um, what was kind of like in your brain or your relationship with his writing um, when putting together this new anthology. Yeah. So it's, he's one of my, I guess like really important tent tent pole authors. Mm. Like I have the, for me, like the big three major, like literary, like literary influences on what I do and how I do it now, mm-hmm. uh, like throughout my career, not like, you know, earlier when I was in my twenties or whatever, just writing stuff. But like, as a, as a writer, a published writer, my like kind of tent pole, there's more than three, but like, I always go back to Kathy Koja, George Bataille and J.G. Ballard. Those are my three. And there's a bunch more, but like those are three that really did a thing that spoke, that speaks to me on multiple levels. And I try to, it's not even like intentionally put that in my work. It's just kind of, those are the paths that I am walking down um, or hope I'm walking down at least. And Ballard has been so Ballard has just been like one of my favorite writers since my 20s probably my mid-20s and I'm I'm 41 so it's like not a small amount of time um 
and one of the things that I love about his work and one of the things that I feel is persistent in a lot of my work, especially in uh, a lot of the stories in Tawalo and several of the stories in Grief Rituals, is this thing that he does across a ton of his novels uh, where the main character is in shock the whole time. Mm. Usually his books, not often, but a lot of his books open with terrible thing has already happened Mm -hmm. and someone has already died, like someone close to the main character. And the rest of the book is that character struggling to figure out what to do and uh, maybe solve like what the fuck happened. Um, But also they're kind of led along by others who, who have maybe not even like, bad motives but like different motives than that and they get pulled easily into things because being in shock you're really easily led to things right you're really easily i just come over here like even physically much less like emotionally philosophically mentally like it's really easy to lead someone in shock into a thing uh this is part of sidebar this is part of why i think uh, evangelical Christianity loves more than anything to have their new, like newly converted followers have the worst histories, like the worst backstories. Mm. Like I used to, I, I wasn't just an alcoholic. I was an alcoholic who lost my entire family. And then I became a drug addict because a lot of times the people who go through that are in shock. <laughs> and so it's easy to corral them into belief. Um, but it's so like, that's what crash is, right? It's like, they're in a car accident person fucking dies and dealing with that well in like tangled up in their own like marital issues and the way that they're like difference their differences in their their sexual needs and sexual desires and how would they both play with that and pull at that for each other sometimes in love sometimes in like cruelty um and they are led to especially Ballard, like especially James in the book, uh, is, I believe, is led into what is essentially a cult um, because he's so susceptible, because he's in shock from having killed someone in a car crash. And it gets all messy and it gets all murky and it gets very interesting. And that's Kingdom Come has a very similar thing. Uh, I think Supercon has a very similar thing. I can't remember Millennium People. Like a bunch of his novels have this kind of Ballard template. And I love that template because a character, a main character in shock is a main character you could do a lot with. And it's also interesting because that is like essentially an altered state you're dealing with. And it's an altered state that I don't think we explore enough, like truly explore. So on the very personal note, right, like in writing stuff, it makes sense. I wrote half of those stories in Tuala when I was deeply in shock. So it just already makes sense. But you know, moving forward, it's like this, keep coming back to like this horrible thing that happens in your life that was completely unexpected and, and what happens from there. And so that's like kind of why he's such a big deal for me. He was also a widower, like he himself was a widower. So I feel now extra like connection to him and like, I think an extra understanding uh, emotionally to his work that I, I had before where it was a little more detached. And now I'm like, Oh no, I know it. Like I know exactly. Not that I had never been in shock before, 
but like on that level of like giant life-changing event uh, like horrible giant life-changing event i'm like oh i'm there like i yes i see you i i know why you were channeling this like your whole career um so that is you know the kind of big thing for me with him in terms of the term Ballardian, i've heard it used so many different ways and for so many different reasons and i think to me it often speaks to that kind of intersection of uh the the way that the social landscape sculpts us um i i and it can be like anywhere within the social like things socially so like cronenberg right like cronenbergian is all about the intersection of like the human body and technology and that's borrowed some from ballard right like crash is uh like videodrome is crash but it's beta tapes instead of you know cars and uh there's like a through line in a lot of cronenberg's work that i think even he would go like oh yeah that's ballard he's like a huge ballard fan even his fucking novel consumed reads like a ballard book Hmm. um and so i think like like the cronenbergian is essentially Ballardian, but like with some extra things <laughs> conspiracy is generally has to be a part of it right there's shadowy it's not just like a group of people who might have ulterior motives but there's like express shadowy organizations pulling the character strings is a thing through all of through not all of but most of Cronenberg's work right there's like mm-hmm. almost like the 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 new agey psychotherapy thing as science right so like Cronenberg has his own thing but I think it's like jumping from a Ballardy point. Whereas I think Ballard is, it's not just generally like technology, like it's including technology, but it's other stuff. Kingdom Come is all about how consumerism and nationalism are wrapped up together and how easily people are led down that path, especially if they're in a state of shock. Um, And so I, I think it's kind of about how like we are sculpted socially and how malleable we are if we are, wounded uh like to that or or, you know wounded then like we are malleable to those to those uh machinations this is the spiraling cadaver from feral architecture ballardian horrors edited by me he didn't get to talk with her before she died because he missed her call He doesn't remember her final message because he was drunk when he listened to and then deleted it. Like her final communication with him never happened. Like she was never here. And he wonders if maybe that's partially true. That maybe his memory isn't real or at the very least isn't accurate. That the woman who he would give anything to see one more time had perhaps been more an amalgamation of several people experienced through a haze of alcohol and prescription pills like he was never here. But neither was the world, or at least not really. That day, the two of them watched another plane drop another bomb and another group of civilians seeking refuge were ripped clean off the map. No, not clean. Horrifically so. Covered in dust and blood and cinder and ash, found holding each other, trying to huddle in some kind of futile collective notion of safety. Bodies mangled. 
their bones shattered, protruding from gray flesh, no longer able to experience joy or love or hope or pain or sadness or self-righteousness or anger or greed or lust or friendship. People reduced to the things we were forged from, clay and dirt and oil, carbon, water, the human stain. But the day two of them watched another plane drop another bomb in another country, as they had year after year after year, as we all have, as we all have, waiting for the planes and the bombs and the sorrow and the fear to finally come to them, to finally come on them. They sat together drinking a bottle of cheap corn whiskey she'd picked up on her way home. The delight in her eyes, the delight always in her eyes. But instead they sat in silence once the bombs fell. It seemed like another day of horror in that way you might get used to it over time. Exposure therapy, but the dark inverse. Numbness, inhumanity, shock, humanity, isolation, embrace. They sat on their rickety, icky, itchy couch, exhausted from the day, from the week, from the month, and watched those fucking bombs fall. Eternal shall they reign. They sat in silence, in pained awe, not the awe of love and acceptance and abstract holy divinity, but awe of a truly biblical kind, terrible and unknowable. The thing that melts your ability to think for hours or days or weeks or years or decades, lifetimes, generations, centuries, just another day, always another fucking day and another fucking bomb. They watched it hit over and over from different angles, like high quality porn, the money shot repeated in slow motion on television and on the internet for all the world to see. Look at how well we do this. Look at how good we are. Look at how we fucking got them. Enemies huddled together in their underground bunkers. It was too much. It was always too much. And she slammed another massive glug of the brown liquor and went to bed. Her heart was pounding, tears threatening to break the surface tension of her eyelids. The images wouldn't go away. They were always there. If not that night, then the next. If not these people, then someone else. Someone who isn't them. But that doesn't make it okay. It just makes it empty and horrible and like the whole fucking world needs to stop and spin in reverse just to feel the mammoth weight of every fucking thing that let it happen. That makes it happen. And we don't even pause. We don't hesitate. The bed was soft and warm but hollow. All creature comforts rotting from the inside while the world remains, insists on being this way. She cried herself to sleep, hoping for the numbness of exhaustion or booze or grief to take it all away, to just give her a goddamn second to breathe without every grasping breath being full of abrasive, carcinogenic dust and irradiated powdered blood. She could see the gray of their skin, the unmoving muscles underneath, and nothing made sense. She fitfully slept with the images of the dead hovering over her, not as ghosts of or apparitions, but as fully formed flesh and blood people who once lived and struggled and breathed the same rancid air as her, who once held the door open for a stranger and helped a child who tripped on a rock. They sat with her as she slept, but he watched the bombs fall. He couldn't rip himself away, not for her, not for anything. The way that that feeling worms its way into your stomach and sends cold blood up to your heart, the way it hurts so fucking much, but there's nothing else to do. And every single channel and stream and article and video shows the same goddamn thing, but grows increasingly clean and victimless. Our perfect, precise AI-directed bombs only ever hit their intended targets who are always evil and against us and our allies and what we all stand for. 
And when they die, they are wiped from the earth like bleach to bacteria, not in a shower of rubble and shrapnel and rockets that shoot out literal knives that sever children's spines at weddings, but in a perfectly ordered way that leaves no trace left behind because there's a movie you should see and a new laptop that you need. And are your erections hard enough? And how's your testosterone level? And didn't the celebrity do something so crazy recently? That night, he let it move through his body like an orgasm. It hollowed him out, at least what was left to hollow out. Like the entire media consumer interface was mainlined into him, freebasing misery and consumer goods and prepackaged opinions. He popped another pill and downed it with a quarter of the bottle of whiskey, the television, his lullaby, his comfort, his everything. The next morning, she was gone. Nothing scary, just off to work. He could sense her warm lips on his cheek as he was waking up, as though she had just kissed him and was merely on the other side of the front door, like she wasn't really gone, would never be gone, but for this fleeting moment before they could be together again. (laughs) ¶¶ 